You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation. So welcome to Simulcast and the June 2019 edition of our Journal Club. I'm Victoria Brazel and I'm joined again by Ben Simon. How are you, Ben? Mate, I am good. We just got back from Uluru. I have indeed, and uh, that is a cold place to be at this time of year, but always dramatic to be out in the desert and appreciating a little bit of the wildlife. So speaking of all things cultural, that's what we're going to talk about today on our General Club. Uh, But before we do, I'm going to just give a little shout out for those of us in our simulation community, particularly in Australasia. Uh, You should be wanting to go to the Australasian Simulation Congress, which is on from the 2nd to the 5th of September at the Gold Coast. And I know you're going to be there, Ben, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. Really looking forward to it. We're going to be doing a little simulcast panel. We are. Simulcast panel, some simulcast summaries, uh, some great keynote speakers. Some of you might know Komal Bajaj from New York Hospitals and Healthcare, who'll be talking about change management and simulation. Also, Walter Greenleaf, who is a bit of a virtual reality expert. So just as a bit of a shout out, as I said, go to www.simulationcongress.com. Early bird registrations close July 26th. And shortly, I will be releasing just a very short little teaser podcast with some comments from Sharon Clipperton, the uh, Sim Health convener, and Komal Bajaj, one of the keynote speakers. So hopefully that'll just give you a bit of an idea about what to expect but um, I guess encouraging people to go along particularly if if they are in this part of the world. So Ben tell us about the papers that we did this month uh, and what some of our bloggers commenters thought about it. Yeah absolutely so um, I might have bitten off more than we can chew this month but I was so keen to highlight some of the work you guys have been doing on the Gold Coast and I Sometimes I have a little bit of um, hesitation in kind of promoting uh, the papers and publications of the Simulcast team in terms of it being the right format for us to critique it on our own website. But I just felt so passionately that the um, three papers and or articles we featured this month were just really important additions to the conversation. and simulation culture in general that I really wanted to drill down and hopefully motivate people out there to read some of the work that you and Eve Purdy and Charlotte and Jack, for example, have been doing. Uh, yes, definitely. Don't don't feel bad about any sort of positive biased feedback we might get. We had to go through peer review, Ben, so we all need a little bit of something good after that. Yeah, very true, very true. <laughs> so this is, this is the official fan club. And uh, I, I really thought it was important. I like to use sometimes to use Journal Club really just to push people to read, read papers that uh, I think are really important. Um, and I know we talked about it a little bit last month, but I'm keen to sort of reflect on the group's take on it as well. So we nominated three articles. Uh, the first was entitled Improving the Relational Aspects of Trauma Care Through Translational Simulation. That was by Brazel et al. and published in Advances in Simulation. We then looked at a blog post from Eve Purdy called Simulation and Cultural Compression, which was published on ICENET. Uh, and then finally, we uh, looked at a related article uh, from Purdy et al. entitled Identifying and Transmitting the Culture of Emergency Medicine Through Simulation. And that was in uh, Academic Emergency Medicine Education and Training. 
So going through those papers, I will be fairly clipped with the summaries, but um, in the first paper, Improving the Relational Aspects of Trauma Care, you guys essentially studied simulation activities using a narrative survey of trauma providers at Gold Coast University Hospital. There were 95 uh, staff involved in uh, giving feedback on those surveys, uh, on their perspectives on the monthly trauma simulations that are run down there. And then that data was combined with field notes from Eve Purdy's ethnographic observations over a three-month period interacting with those teams. And then all of those findings were kind of put together uh, through the lens of looking at this relational coordination framework. And if I'm summarizing this correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, Vic, but relational coordination framework really outlines three key conceptual attributes of high-performance teams, naming them as shared goals, shared knowledge, and mutual respect. And then it proposes that those attributes are further reinforced by four characteristics of communication within those teams, which involves the qualities of frequency, timeliness, communicational accuracy, and having a problem-solving focus. And essentially what did that research find was that the concept of simulation as an enabler of mutual respect was quite predominant in that analysis and then closely followed uh, by its effect on the development of high-quality communication as well as the ability for SIM to facilitate shared goals and shared knowledge, which was less prominent than the other things but still easily recognised. I then really wanted us to look at uh, the next two articles together and that is that... um, the paper in academic emergency medicine, identifying and transmitting the culture of emergency medicine through simulation uh, by Eve et al. Um, And in this paper, you guys sort of undertook a focused ethnography of a simulated emergency department exercise that's delivered to about 100 third-year medical students. And this ethnography included participant observation, some informal interviews, as well as document review. And in doing so, uh, the paper states that the Through analysis, you uncovered seven core values that could be deducted from the simulated ED exercise, and the paper names them as identifying and treating dangerous pathology, managing uncertainty, patients and families at the centre of care, balancing needs and resources at the system level, the value of the team approach, education as integral to emergency medicine, and emergency medicine as a part of self-identity. And then there's 27 further associated beliefs that I won't go into on the podcast. Um, But this study really expanded our understanding of what simulation teaches um, and its ability to transmit culture or participate in the process of cultural exchange. And Eve kind of goes into that in more detail in her blog post on ISNET as well. So in that, she explores this concept of the hidden curriculum and cultural compression. And these are two concepts that I really find quite personally fascinating for a number of reasons. So the hidden curriculum, I guess, is really essentially the stuff that we teach without saying that we're teaching it. And so while we tend to focus on teaching facts and knowledge, our behaviours and interactions actually send a whole bunch of social signalling regarding expected patterns of behaviour and shared cultural values. Who's in the group? Who's not in the group? All that stuff. And it's really complex, fascinating and often subconscious stuff. We're teaching it without realising that we're teaching it. Eve then explores this interrelated concept, which she calls cultural compression. And she quotes one definition as cultural compression takes place when individuals experience culturally normative restrictions and when the norms of this group 
or society bear down on someone with the greatest intensity. And so Vian argues that these concepts can often be thought of as negative, but they're actually really important and they can be either positive or negative depending on how it's handled. And in particular, that simulation and assessment are moments of significant cultural compression. And I think, to me, all of these papers really add up to uh, really highlighting a number of things that we maybe instinctively feel about sim that, that we don't name very well. Um, and it's really, I'm just trying to think how to phrase it, it certainly shone a light on something that we oper- that is happening strongly, unconsciously, and I think it will hopefully have a lot more power when we think about it consciously and explicitly. Any thoughts, Vic, before I move on? Yeah, I think you've done a lovely job of summarising there, Ben, and like you, I have had this idea that this was a obvious outcome of simulation, a depth of impact that was hard to measure, and so I'm certainly indebted to Eve for coming and making all that happen. Yeah, I think for me it's given me the words and the vocabulary to describe really important outcomes of simulation as an intervention that I previously haven't um, had the sophistication to explain and we sort of hint at it through sort of buzzwords but um, really not to the depth and the integrity of the papers that have that you guys have come out with in the last year. So I guess when it comes to the group discussion, we had a lovely discussion this month. The, the papers and the response to the papers was really uniformly positive and mostly prompted reflection regarding the impact of simulation on the culture within each individual's experience. So a lot of our responses were sort of taking in the message that you guys had given out and really just sort of filtering it through our own experience and and pausing and reflecting on the things we maybe hadn't thought about. I guess I do have, I wonder whether we're not as good at critiquing qualitative research in the medical community. So I think some of us, again, struggled with the critique per se, uh, but certainly there were a lot of really valuable reflections. Yeah, just to sort of jump in there, um, quite aside from you being my mate and therefore maybe not critiquing me with the same kind of feedback rigour that you take into your debrief room, Ben, uh, (laughs) I do think that's sort of the case. You know, folks with our kind of background, we're both very good at critiquing qualitative research, i.e. saying, well, it's not really proof, uh, but also very bad at truly critiquing it in terms of thinking about its quality. And again, I would hasten to add, I'm no expert on this, but have started to appreciate the kind of measures of rigor that there are. And I guess the most obvious one that's easy to point the finger at here is uh, our reflexivity. You know, both Eve and I believe that uh, simulation does transmit culture. So, of course, it's easy potentially to find that when you do your research. Uh, But I also take the point that a lot of us don't have those tools. So um, while it may be conceptually easy to agree with, we are still relying on uh, some of those peer reviewers to ensure that there's some quality there and that if there are things to perhaps not make such a bold claim about that um, they do catch us up. And I think to me that is part of what made these papers exciting was that it's a a new language but also a a new process and lens to look at simulation that makes sort of instinctive sense but gives us more sophisticated tools to unpack that. In terms of the take-home themes that I could sort of um, get from the group discussion, I think that 
Um, there were three main ones, one being that the power of utilising simulation to transmit culture is often underutilised and underrecognised. Secondly, that role modelling is a really powerful technique in transmitting culture, both on the floor and through the role play that we do in simulation. And potentially we don't harness that in a positive way as much as we do sometimes in a satirical way when portraying other teams. And then thirdly, that the cultural tone that we set in simulation does seem to anecdotally leak back into clinical practice, particularly in places that have a strong culture of regular simulation. So uh, Chris Farr is a friend of mine, um, began discussion. He's a GP that uh, did a term with us in our kids' emergency. And he argued that cultural compression through simulation can be a potentially efficient orientation tool. And then he says it can be incredibly difficult working with a group of new people in a high-octane, stressful setting for the first time. And sims provide an avenue to explore these groups and interpersonal relationships as well as continue to build on them as time goes on. Further to that, I think it's easier to welcome new members into a well-established culture and they settle in quicker, buy into the culture quicker and become an effective member of the team and the cycle repeats. Jennifer Dale-Tam, and I'm, I'm so uh, grateful to her and Janine Kane in that they come every single month to the General Club without fail. Um, so thanks again so much for your comments. She shared her, Jennifer in particular, shared her reflections on the risks of implicit rather than explicit design of cultural learning objectives. So she said, explicit translation of culture and simulation happens through conscious role modelling of facilitators and senior members of a team during the scenario, continuing into the debrief, and especially if values or norms are written into the objectives, which I'd have to say I've never done. Implicit translation occurs through cues, communication, and reactions of team members when behaving as they would in the clinical environment. And cultural translation, whether purposeful or not, can have positive or negative effects in the long term. But in my experience, simulation has a positive effect. Jessica Stokes Parrish and a number of other commenters really explore the importance of high standard role modelling to learning both from a cultural and intellectual perspective. And I argued that I think role modelling is often a quite underutilised tool within simulation um, where we tend to throw inexperienced teams into a scenario without support. Um, but we don't really think about potentially the learning benefits of having someone guide them through that scenario uh, through positive role modelling. Uh, lastly, we had a lovely, um, quite extended comment from Jenny Rudolph, who summarised the spirits of the papers really elegantly, included a reflection on her childhood trips to Vermont, and, and then she argued that um, Victoria Even team shift our attention from the conventional intended consequences of simulation to the unintended ones. They pivot our attention from the educator's focus on knowledge and skills to the secondary and often unintentional relation and cultural consequences of simulations. The summary of the learning from the papers is really well worth an independent read if you go to our blog, and it includes some take-homes such as culture is revealed and transmitted via simulation. She argues that it's the process of communication that conveys culture as much as the content, and that culture is heavily compressed in assessments and other high-stakes micro-communications. So thank you so much to everybody who came along uh, this month. I know it's a big ask for three papers, and some people did mention it was a, a bit uh, too much for their time constraints, but really grateful to everybody's contributions, and um, I appreciate the help. Yeah, and I think one thing I'd add to that, Ben, is that something Eve has taught me is that 
culture is quite specific and so how this plays out for everybody will be different. One of the things about this is it's not necessarily generalizable in the specifics. Um, I think the idea that there is much more being transmitted, as it were, when we're engaging in simulation is to be recognized. But exactly what that is and is uh, is going to be different for different situations. So I think just having people think about it is a good outcome. So moving on to our expert opinion, and I'm wondering if I could ask a favor, but you know Christian Crow a little bit better than I do. I was wondering if you could explain uh, who he is and how he's involved with your service at the moment. Sure. So uh, Christian Crow is an anaesthetist from Denmark where he works in Aarhus at the university there. And he's been involved with a number of the simulation programs in Denmark, but also has an international reputation and did his PhD. I met him while he was doing that, looking at uh, debriefing. And he wrote a lovely article called Thinking on Your Feet about the artistry and values that uh, so-called experts in debriefing engage in. Uh, but right now he's working with me at the Gold Coast University Hospital on a new project related to simulation and culture relating to medical emergency teams. Uh, and he's about to go on holidays to Sydney. So, um, But it's been lovely having him along with us. Yeah, and um, that article I think was our second, no, it was our fourth Journal Club article ever on the Simulcast yes. Journal Club uh, quite a while ago now, I think three years. So uh, Christian uh, has sort of that qualitative background as well, so I was really keen to hear his perspective and critique on these papers. He starts with a little bit of a tribute just to Eve and says, with a journal club titled All About Eve, it's hard not to start this opinion piece without a comment about her. I believe it's only fair to those that are not aware of the reasons for all the fuss about her as well and not the other authors of the article. Eve has sadly just left the Gold Coast after a year to go back to Canada and there's no doubt that she'll be missed here on the Gold Coast and I can only hope that they know and treasure her insights, knowledge and persona in Canada before she returns to the Gold Coast. Um, he says that rereading these articles and reading the conversation that followed, uh, something became clearer to him and that is uh, really having a strong think about the fact that Sim is often heavily at risk of um, negative training and negative learning or training that unintentionally results in the acquisition of incorrect knowledge, skills or behaviour. And I think he sort of frames that particularly with culture, because it's a hidden curriculum, it's even more risky than some of the incorrect procedural technique and things that we might accidentally role model and seem unintentionally as well. He argues um, that in his mind the work done uh, by Eve et al., really has the potential to have a tremendous impact in the design of simulations, especially for undergraduates who in this context are cultural novices. So showing us all how effective simulations can transmit culture, it is undoubtedly a way to change the culture when culture needs to be changed. Um, he shares some further reflections on the paper and, and then personally says he's taking a number of things from these two studies. Mostly essential is that cultural implications and potential changes um, that simulation can facilitate are important to reflect upon. And in particular, an awareness of how characters that we play, professionals, patients, in person or on the phone, and paying attention to how we portray them is important to ensure that they represent what relationship and culture is intended to foster, uh, both from inter- and intra-professional relationships. 
Secondly, he argues that relational coordination is a framework to facilitate the analysis of institutional relationships is of value. And then lastly, he argues that he's been made of aware of this concept of cultural compression um, and using the right words can only make more relationships more productive and easier, which is a good thing. Excellent. Well, you've done a lovely job of summarising some pretty complex and novel things for many of our listeners, Ben, so well done. All right, well, we might go on to our uh, next shorter papers. Does that sound all right with you? Absolutely. Looking forward to it. Well, in fact, the theme, Ben, did you pick the theme this time? <laughs> I did. Well, you know what was really helpful is that the same word kind of uh, came up a number of times in the titles. So I think it's about definitions and, and measuring quality, I think. Exactly. Yes, it's all about measurement. So the first paper is entitled Balancing Deliberate Practice and Reflection, a Randomised Comparison Trial of Instructional Designs for Simulation-Based Training in Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Skills. And this is by Emily Diedrich and colleagues from Kansas in the US, uh, a very multidisciplinary author team, and this has been published in Simulation Healthcare in June 2019. And really the background to this paper is that whenever we're engaged in simulation, we have a phase that is the doing and we have a phase that is the reflecting. And uh, particularly in light of recent literature, we're unsure what the balance between those two things should be. Uh, And particularly with the interest in rapid cycle deliberate practice, people have started to go around saying, oh, we should do a whole lot less debriefing and maybe we just need to do lots of practising. And uh, the authors, I guess, summarise this by saying, one must choose between maximising hands-on practice opportunities versus allowing time for debriefing and reflection. And certainly I've personally had this experience as well. We have a format for our students, which is the live, die, repeat, which is a little bit like the rapid cycle deliberate practice versus many of our sims do have a scenario and then quite a prolonged debrief and we kind of hope then they apply the lessons. So I think this is an important question, Ben. What do you think? I I have mixed feelings about this question, Vic, in that yeah. um, I do think what I really like about this question is I don't think it was reduced to an either or. It was more sort uh-huh. of saying what is good about each for the particular learning that you want to achieve. I still worry there's a little bit of territorial anxiety in the question. <laughs> But you're quite right. In fact, in their introduction, I think this is an important, it's not just semantic difference. We hypothesized, I'm quoting here, that drill style training, maximizing hands-on practice with direct coaching, would best improve task work, for example, compression rate, rate and depth, whereas scrimmage style practice emphasising full rehearsals of resuscitations with reflective debriefing would best improve teamwork, e.g. role assignment and clarity. So you're quite right. They actually started with the idea that there would be strengths of each approach, and I think that probably is better than just a binary one is better than the other. So I'm with you. By the way, I had to do a little bit of Googling about what scrimmage really means. Oh, my meant, God, me too. Because I know it's good American, <laughs> yes, I know it's good American football terminology, <laughs> but apparently here it just means a bit of a confused game. Yeah, so I didn't. that analogy didn't hit me particularly well for branding of that yeah, style. Yeah, I think if you're American it would hit you a little more precisely. But mm. basically I think most of us are doing scrimmage. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right, so what did they do? Uh, as they've described it as a randomized comparison trial with pre-test and post-test. So they took 131 first-year residents, so these are interns, uh, across 19 different specialties. And they allocated these uh, junior doctors to 26 teams of five to six participants and then randomly assigned the teams to either be the drill category or the scrimmage category for a two-hour course. And then they measured the outcomes um, with a pre-test and post-test scenario. And I'll come back to exactly what they measured with that shortly. But essentially, what was the difference between what they did? So the uh, drill training group, as we said, they did three scenarios, but with a big emphasis on maximizing the hands-on practice. So they had uh approximately three 25-minute stations and probably the most important thing to say is that their total hands-on practice time was approximately 60 minutes out of the two hours uh, with the rest of it some coaching and transitions. And then the other group, the so-called scrimmage group, uh, as we said, they also did three scenarios but in most of these they did about a five-minute scenario and then quite a prolonged debriefing phase. So their total hands-on practice time was about 18 minutes with 50 minutes of debriefing. So I think they did make quite a difference between these two groups. And then how did they actually measure it? And I think this is important. Uh, How did they measure the outcomes? What were they looking at uh, as the outcome measures for the groups? And it was pretty comprehensive, I've got to say. Uh, Some of these were more what they would describe as the task work, so CPR compression quality, time from arrest to starting compressions, time to first defibrillation, use of compression adjuncts, uh, airway management, but also things that they might describe as teamwork, so leadership behaviours and role assignments. And, uh, Ben, we know what their hypothesis was, but... uh, in good news, all of them improved. But in maybe surprising mo- uh, news, there was no difference between the groups on either the teamwork or the task work. What do you think about that, Ben? You know, <laughs> I'm not sure what I think. Um, I think it was a, a pretty well-designed study for the question. Um, I do concede that it's a fairly brief sort of educational intention in total um, and that there isn't sort of the follow-up data that we saw with some of the rapid cycle deliberate practice stuff. Um, But reassuring, I guess, that uh, if you throw either method of teaching, people are going to learn. Yes, absolutely, and I think we would be a little bit worried. And I do love this um, terminology because... I think quite rightly they have compared two quite good strategies rather than, and I'm using their words, rather than comparison against an educationally impoverished control or pretest. Mm. Uh, so they're not saying they compared either of these strategies to nothing. They compared them to each other. Look, I think this comes back to the age-old question. Um, is there a difference that we were unable to measure with our outcome measures or is there truly no difference? And their discussion, they stay pretty modest about what they claim or what they suggest, but I think there's some suggestion that there's leakage across these, i.e. just by doing drills you build teams and also if you're debriefing at length you end up talking a lot about tasks. So I'm not too surprised that 
there are plenty of crossover effects, but I also think it is actually quite hard to measure a difference. And of course, these are not exactly authentic teams. They're teams full of interns. Yes, they're at the beginning of their learning curves. So of course, they're going to do better at the end than the beginning. Uh, but at the same time, I think it's still useful. And I think it prompts us to think about how we measure outcomes in general. And I suppose, as you say, the, the big thing is we're not sure how any of this translates in terms of their skills back in practice but you and I know how hard it is to extend our outcome measures to that kind of area. Yeah absolutely I think I think I just have a hidden fear that if you kind of you know how sometimes things get replicated and talked about in a gradually more reductionist way and I just worry this is going to be seen as the rapid cycle versus good judgment paper, which I don't think is what the authors or the paper claim to be. Um, but I just worry about it being sort of over-interpreted and underthought about in that manner. Yes, you're always thoughtful like that, Ben, and I agree. We wouldn't want this just to say, oh, it doesn't matter what you do. It certainly matters what you do, uh, but it may be difficult to sort of demonstrate exactly why or how it matters what you do. You're listening to Simulcast. Well, speaking of measurement, we'll go on to our next paper. So this one I think is quite a, uh important bit of work that is – uh, hard to do, and that is systematic reviews. So this is a paper titled Frameworks and Quality Measures Used for Debriefing in Team-Based Simulation, a Systematic Review. This is by Endicott and colleagues from Pl Plymouth in the UK, and this is in BMJ STEL, Simulation and Technology Enhanced Learning from August 2018. And uh, the background to this, and they state some of this and some of this is my words, um, debriefing is important and it affects the outcomes of simulation and in particular they highlight that debriefing teams and interprofessional teams may be hard for a variety of reasons. So what they aim to do in this systematic review and I'm again now going to use their words really is to look at what frameworks were used for debriefing interprofessional and team-based simulations and to look at the metrics that were developed to assess the quality of debriefing and then, in amongst all of that, see if there's some evidence gaps for how we should do debriefing. Uh, so pretty pretty big ask, even for a systematic review, Ben. Yeah, a pretty huge task. All right, so what did they do? Uh, again, I'm not going to try and pretend to give anyone lessons in how to do a systematic review, but from my reading of it, this was pretty well done. They described and clearly documented their database searches, the search terms they used, the method by which they did a quality review, and you can see with that sort of standard uh, Prisma flowchart that they started with 676 papers and then they whittled that down to 18 that were included in uh, what they describe as qualitative and quantitative synthesis. And therein follows both some information presented in tables, but then some that is also presented in their narrative style, which looks at the issues that they canvassed when they looked at these papers. And this included uh, who were the participants in these debriefings, what kind of frameworks, they discovered 18 different ones, what kind of performance measures were used both in terms of participant assessment but also in debriefers assessment, things like the DASH and the OSAD? How did uh, different studies go about selection and training of facilitators? So I think 
as I read all of this, I thought, wow, there's a lot of information in here. There's some good quality debriefing papers that have been reviewed together. Uh, but I still wasn't entirely sure, largely I think because of the heterogeneity amongst these, what actual synthesized guidance it gave me for any of these questions. So I think I saw reinforced a lot of the things I'd seen in previous papers and the individual papers, but I still didn't know whether this was more evidence that I didn't use need to use video in my debriefing. I didn't really know whether it meant I should abandon a reactions phase because there wasn't really much evidence for having one because it hadn't been compared to nothing. So I found it quite hard to get the take-home messages, even though I actually think they did a systematic approach to looking at that literature. And can I ask, do you think that is because of the method or is that just the, the unavoidable result of the data and where we're at with regard to evidence for this stuff? Yeah, I do think that this is really hard to take to, I mean, there are apples and oranges here and it's pretty hard to see anything else because people have asked slightly different questions and they've asked them in slightly different ways and then to try and synthesize that into a systematic review is very difficult. So I think it's probably more a comment on the literature itself and I think if you tried to narrow down the systematic review to only comparing things that are truly comparable, you just wouldn't have ended up with more than two articles at one time and so then that's not much of a systematic review. And again, I'm really not the expert on this, but if I look at other things that I've seen described where people talk about critical reviews or narrative reviews, I can see why they do that, even though they're not systematic in the same way that we're used to understanding that terminology. It may be that um, looking at the question with a little bit more latitude, strangely enough, might answer the question better than doing it um, with a more transparent and reproducible approach, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that does make sense. Thanks. You say that like it might actually be true and I'm hesitant. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, look, I think to me when I read that paper, I just wasn't sure I guess from a practical standpoint, I I struggled with what to take home for it that would change my practice beyond an awareness that there's a very broad range of things that are being done out there. And I guess maybe that induces a little bit more humility in myself about being adamant about what the right way to do debriefing or a learning conversation really is because the reality is that it's fairly um, divergent and heterogeneous out there. All right, so our last of our three uh, papers is also related to measurement and I think from a very interesting perspective. So the title of this paper is Defining and Measuring Quality in Acute Pediatric Trauma Stabilisation, a Phenomenographic Study. And this is by Ralph McKinnon and colleagues uh, in Advances in Simulation. So this is free open access, uh, just published in April 2019. And the background to this, and I think this is quite an interesting starting point for something published in a simulation journal, and that is uh, to say, well, we want to really show that our simulation makes a difference in our pediatric traumas, but we don't know what that quality difference is. So in fact, this group went about trying to define what is quality in acute pediatric trauma. 
So I think this is, um, you know, just taking a step, step back. We want to train the best way, but what should the outcome measure be? What's a good pediatric trauma? And so they used a uh, method called phenomenography, which emphasized, and I think this is a theme that runs through the whole paper, that in fact that concept of quality may look very different according to where you're looking from and that there are different perspectives. Uh, they start in their introduction by illustrating that previously used outcome measures both for any quality assessment, but in particular for outcomes of simulation, are a little bit flawed. There's no ideal clinical outcome measures. Uh, there's a predominance of things what they call task completion steps, so things like time to CT, etc. Um, things such as the consensus-derived endpoints in the TARN uh, benchmarking sort of audit process that they have in the United Kingdom. Uh, and I thought they had quite a good quote at the end of their introduction. Uh, the aim of this study was to create a framework of understanding of acute pediatric trauma care quality and its measurement from the perspectives of team members and administrators, and that this would inform simulation-based training because we really need a good quality measure. So what do you think, Ben? I think this is quite an important starting point, albeit an unusual one. I think it's a really deep starting point, and I guess I came to it with a frame of being interested both as a clin pediatric emergency clinician and as a sim educator. Um, so I very much like the question, and I guess from the you know little bit of a part of me that's a slight anarchist anti sort of checklist, everything's got to be a number and a time, and we should measure things that are measurable rather than measuring things that are important to the patient. I really loved the philosophical stance that they took in trying to work that out on a much deeper level. Yes, this does not surprise me that you like that. <laughs> so what did they actually do? Uh, the, the methods are well described in the paper, and again, I'm not in a position to really rigorously critique a um, phenomenographic study, but I'll tell you what they did. They did interviews with 36 participants from three different hospitals, and interestingly, half of them were with clinical team members, uh, trauma providers, and half of them were with so-called admin or people involved in trauma governance and structures. Uh, they published the interview guide using semi-structured interviews, and they do have a table in there that describes their analysis. Uh, which is a multi-step process by which they finally derived a set of categories. And uh, again, what I will say is to the best of nine, my knowledge, they did certainly address some of the quality and rigour issues uh, related to qualitative research. So what were the results? These are set out very nicely in the table two of the uh, paper, and that's probably where the money is, but then also elaborated further in the narrative description of the results. And I'm going to go through these briefly, but just so you can get an idea about what are these perspectives on quality. The first is the system perspective. So these are uh, are there protocols? Is there good governance? Are there checklists? Are there things like morbidity and mortality meetings? This is a sign of quality in pediatric trauma. The second one is the team perspective. And again, this is kind of mechanics of how the team functions. And I think this has predominated in some of our simulation training outcomes evaluation. Uh, are roles identified? Is there good team leadership? The third one is the so-called process perspective. Uh, and probably this is best emphasised by are we adhering to our protocols? Uh, have we got the best care delivery? 
The fourth one is the individual perspective, recognising that there is sort of innate personal perspectives of team members and how they feel about the trauma care quality. The fifth one is the data perspective. So this is the sort of cut and dried factual outcomes. What's our morbidity? What's our mortality? What's our adverse event rates? And the final one, I guess back to where we started our podcast, is the culture perspective. What is the quality of the so-called interprofessional discourse, etc.? So I've kind of really just given that uh, not quite what it deserves, but you get the idea that there are different perspectives on what quality means both to providers and people involved. And you might have a comment on this, Ben, too. One of the things that is sort of missing and which they admit is missing is the perspective from uh, family members and patients themselves. Um, But they do sort of mention how that might be incorporated into the perspectives of some of the providers. So you know, I thought it was pretty impressive and interesting, Ben. So what do you think? Yeah, I, I like the question. And I think to me, that sort of systematic breakdown reminded me a little bit of echoes of the human factor paper as well, in terms of looking at how we can improve teams from the perspective of the self, from the team, from the environment and from the system. And then they've added a couple of other um, layers outside that onion. Um, and uh, I think the concept of utilising family and patient at the centre of that assessment is uh, a valid and important one but hard to quantify and hard to achieve. Um, One sort of measurement that they did allude to was this concept of just asking oneself if my child was involved in a resuscitation that went this way, would I have been happy? And um, I suppose that's maybe overly simplistic but certainly from an emotional level does feel like a pretty reasonable guide as well sometimes from the from the uh, personal level of assessment at least so it's a really nice way of framing the different lenses that we can look through a problem yes i guess the uh only thing i would say is at this stage and they wouldn't they didn't claim anything further is that it's a bit exploratory it provides some principles for next steps but it's not like I can now take this paper and go you beauty here's my checklist about how I can compare my next trauma simulation and see if it's actually making a difference so I think we've still got a way to go for how we translate that back to their initial question which is if we're going to do training how do we know if it's working how have we got some good markers for quality but uh, you know these steps happen bit by bit I think that was the theme in a couple of papers really was, you know, it's not just about numbers. This is really complicated. It's complex and really hard to quantify, which isn't necessarily a satisfying answer, uh, but sometimes it's the honest answer, I guess. So it sounds like we might be having this theme of measurement to uh, continue through a few more of our recording sessions yet, Ben. I think so. <laughs> sounds good. <laughs> You're listening to Simulcast. All right. And what have we got coming up for July? All right. So I really want to just uh, carry over this discussion about culture and sim a little bit this month that we've had and keep diving a little bit deeper. So um, I'm going to just recommend one paper this month to read and comment on, but I have added a couple extra resources if people want to keep reading about this stuff. I'm probably going to absolutely destroy the pronunciation of this name, but uh, this is a paper called Exploring Group Boundaries and Conflicts, a Social Identity Theory Perspective, published in Medical Education uh, by N. Bochete. 
Um, and it's a really interesting paper. It was linked to me from a, a tweet uh, by Walter Epic, and I struggled to summarize it really, but it's essentially really a paper about belonging and looking at what are the things um, that motivate us with regards to our position in groups and the way that that then affects how we approach other groups within a healthcare setting. Um, I appreciate it. I'm probably stretching what what it meets the boundaries of a simulation article journal club, but to me, this is really at the heart of a lot of the things that we claim to be teaching about. We're constantly broadcasting that simulation is important for teamwork and culture, and I think we're guilty of actually having fairly superficial conversations along those lines a lot. So I really look forward to people reading this paper, and I've linked uh, in the extra reading a little uh, related editorial by Walter Epic and uh, is it Jan Schmutz or Jan Schmutz? Jan. Jan Schwartz, and uh, also uh, I haven't done this before, but a really wonderful podcast from Malcolm Gladwell's Revisionist History, which is again um, related to this concept of belonging and uh, what outsiders or people who are not fully within a social group um, may do to achieve a sense of belonging within that group. And I think that that affects how we behave in teams a lot more than we acknowledge. Well, Ben, I'm looking forward to this deep dive. I also read that uh, uh, editorial by Walter and Jan and really enjoyed it. So um, as you say, I think if you're going to have conversations about these things in debriefings, you've got to know what you're talking about. So I think you should be unapologetic for the deep dive here. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I like thinking about this stuff. And uh, just in terms of the case study, I am I am pretty proud. We've got some good plot twists coming up this month so for those of you who are into our meta mystery it's, it's heating up i know anything where you've got a screenshot of an iphone it's going to be good <laughs> stay tuned all right ben well thank you again as always uh simulcast listeners this has been the june 2019 edition of the simulcast journal club uh, make sure you go online and read the summary and the papers for july and go on uh, give us a comment there on www.simulationpodcast.com and ben we'll look forward to catching up with you next month absolutely good chat for another hour that's very nice All right, Victoria Breslin, Ben Simon, signing off. You're listening to Simulcast, a podcast about healthcare simulation.